Welcome to The Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement podcast. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is I get to have incredible conversations with some of my favorite people. And now I get to introduce you to one of my absolute favorite people, my dearest friends, uh, Rebecca McBride. She has been studying genetics and biology, working in the field of drug and device research for over 13 years. She studied genetics and biology at Washington State University and completed her master's of science in biomedical regulatory affairs from the University of Washington. She has worked in regulated drug and device research for 13 years and has served on the board of local ACRP group to promote continuing education for clinical researchers. Her passion is to promote ongoing education for her colleagues, hospital teams, and the general public on clinical research for drugs and devices. And I've asked Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca to join me here today um, so that we can just talk a little bit about um, drug, antibiotic, uh, device, food, cosmetic, and supplement regulation here in the United States as it is overseen by the big overarching FDA, which we are definitely hearing a whole lot about in the news these days. And I wanted to bring in someone in the industry to just dispel some of the myths and also resource us with what are our responsibilities as consumers. So thank you, Rebecca, for joining us today. I so appreciate it. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So how did you find your way into regulatory research, particularly in devices is where you specialize? Um, Sort of accidentally, which is how until recently, most people found the industry. I was post-grad trying to find a job in a lab because that's all I knew existed. And a friend of a friend was looking for people to work in what a role that's called research coordinator, which is someone who's not quite a study nurse, but someone to run the studies with the patients. Um, These are investigational drugs or devices, and they take a lot of work to interact with the patients and follow the procedures. I didn't know anything about it. (laughs) And so interviewed for the job and just kind of wandered in. And it turns out I fell in love with the industry. It's um, an opportunity to be at the front end of uh, medical care and what uh, medical care is going to look like in a few years. And after working firsthand with the patients for a few years, um, found other ways that I wanted to grow my strengths and ended up in what's called a sponsor role, which is a medical, in my case, a medical device company, but can be a drug company who is in charge of running the research. They've got a product, they wanna see if it works and they need people to run the studies. And so that's what I do and um, I love it. (laughs) And that's where I've been for, you know, jumped around at a couple of companies and um, just love working with the products and the idea of helping patients without having to be a care provider. That's fantastic. And you really are at the front end of of the medical community. And we talk about being medical adjacent, but, you know, the research in devices and pharma that you and and your colleagues are doing is the stuff that doesn't show up into the educational system for care providers for 10 or 15 years after the study is completed. And, And some of these studies last at least that amount of time as well. So you are really at the infancy of all the new and exciting things that are coming out. 
And I also get to see the things that don't come out because there's, uh, th there's the, the idea of product development, and I'll use product generally to talk about both drugs and devices because it's not dissimilar, is, is huge. There's all these ideas and all these ways to, at least for drugs, how does the product work within the metabolism for devices? How does it act upon the body? And it's only by running either preclinical studies or actual studies on humans before we figure out that, well, that's not going to work, or maybe it works, but it's unsafe, or it works and it's safe, but it's financially untenable. And so one by one, they, they get out. And I, I don't have a more recent number, but about 10 years ago when I was in school, it was depending on the indication, somewhere between 100 to 1 and 10 to 1 ideas to get to a final product that is safe and effective and realistic for patients to and providers to use. And I think that's something that's becoming a little bit more in the in the common knowledge and common vernacular this year, as there have been so many drug tests um, around COVID, that there has been just, I like to think of it as like throwing as much spaghetti at the wall to see what will stick. And yes. certainly as it comes through, um, you know, through the media and through our, our consumer um, endpoint here, we see how many things fail. And there's so much drama around everything that fails, when in reality, that's kind of the ratio that you would expect. And it's the way that things have worked for a long time, good, bad, or indifferent. That's just the best that we can do right now. What's unique about this recent year is it's under a microscope. Usually the failures happen in quiet and then they kind of just go away. And with the exception of, and this could be a whole other rabbit hole, but with the exception of drugs for orphan diseases, and orphan is the term for diseases that affect a very, very small percentage of the population, there's a, a right to access subgroup that's trying to push through in terms of this worked for me and no one else, but I don't care because it's the only thing that worked. And mm -hmm. what is the ethical obligation to continue to provide that? Those sometimes get news alerts, but with the exception of those, the failures are very quiet. And this year has been very interesting as someone being medical adjacent, but kind of inside to see that the failures get not blown out of proportion, but we're moving very quickly in a brand new disease that we're learning more about every day. And this is unprecedented for scientists who are trying to take a calm, cool, and collected mm -hmm. approach to something that needs very quick answers. And so in that, under the microscope aspect, we're also getting a lot of questions about what does the FDA actually do? And some of this was a conversation that was happening anyway, you know, pre-pandemic, because the green movement was really coming along and we're looking for non-toxic cleaners and cosmetics and what's really important about organic food, does it matter? All of these questions, and they fall under the expansive arms of the FDA. Can you give us sort of the Cliff Notes version of what the FDA is here in the United States? Yes. So I have some, some quotes from their website and we can, we can talk about them specifically. Um, from, from my summation, the FDA has a public health focus. And I mentioned that specifically because that's very different than an N of one or an individual consumer. But we'll get to that. So public health, big umbrella. They are responsible for the safety efficacy and security of drug device and biologics for human and veterinary use. They are also responsible for the safety of food supply, cosmetics, and products that emit radiation. 
there's some missing words from those statements, not missing, mm -hmm. but calling attention to very specific boundaries. And there's a whole other subset of the FDA that's dedicated specifically to tobacco products, manufacturing, marketing, distribution, prevention mm -hmm. of access to minors. It's a very specific whole <laughs> subset that falls under their umbrella as well. So when you draw out these statements, they say these omitted words, these omitted statements, can you draw a contrast to what they are saying and, and, and what they're not saying? Yes. So one uh, myth up front that I want to acknowledge, FDA doesn't run trials. They don't, they, they don't do that. Um, and whether it's trials of uh, drug, device, anything, they only act on information that they receive from manufacturers or that they have access to in the scope of inspection of food or cosmetic products. And so let's look at um, drug and devices as a whole, uh, safety, efficacy, and security. And so they're taking data, usually from clinical trials that these manufacturers pr provide and are making risk benefit assessments on behalf of the public on a whole. So they're looking at how uh, how prevalent is this disease? How big of an impact both economically and institutionally does this have? And they're looking at hospital costs, but also workforce costs. Um, and what is the you know, longevity? Is this a chronic health condition or is this like a one-off? You know, are we comparing lupus to common cold sort of thing? What, what is the impact yeah. of this? And then of that particular disease state, then you have this ball of information that kind of encompasses the, the risk profile of the disease itself. And then you have these studies that are designed to show that the drug works, that it makes symptoms less, and that it's um, safe in that it doesn't cause worser outcomes. Mm -hmm. But the goal, depending on the condition, isn't complete avoidance of worser outcomes. And so for a common cold, you know, the risk of, you know, there's a very low tolerance for other side effects. But for these chronic severe conditions, maybe there's a tolerance for a little bit because mm -hmm. the, the um, adverse event, the side effect from the product is still lesser from the overall impact of the disease itself. And then security is a relatively new component, but with the advent of bioterrorism and um, software, uh, medical software is included as a medical device that can be hacked. And mm -hmm. so they're overseeing some of the technology components as well. And so the manufacturers provide all this information and FDA makes a decision, either approval or clearance of these products to decide if it can be sold. So now, you really have kind of a, a two piece happening here, just for the, the clarity of thought is that the FDA is just taking in raw data from whoever is doing the study, whether it's a small independent startup or a large pharma like Pfizer, whoever is running this says, look at all this information that I've garnered for you. You decide if we can take it to market. They do provide mm -hmm. the raw information. They also provide some conclusions. They say, we would mm -hmm. all do the study and here's how we got to these answers, but here's what we show. We show that, I'm totally making up numbers, 50% of, no, let's make it dramatic. 85% of patients see complete resolution of symptoms. 1% have very minor side effects that we can't even guarantee the drug caused. Please give us approval. Gotcha. And so that's when the FDA comes in and says, I've received your pamphlet. Looks good. Yes. Looks awful. No. 
and then it goes out to the consumer. Basically, there's usually yeah. some assessment of, I agree with your statistical methodology, mm-hmm. or I think you shaved some numbers here. Let's look <laughs> at this more closely because it's usually a team of um, scientists, physicians. It's usually not one FDA reviewer. They're subject matter experts that weigh in to ensure that the methodology matches up. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So then, so we have all of those aspects and then you were going to kind of talk about the other side of what's going on here as well. Yes. So food, uh, food cosmetics and radiation products, which I don't know as much about radiation. So let's talk about food and cosmetics. (laughs) Um, The FDA is only responsible for safety. Um, There's no promise of efficacy being reviewed by the FDA in these These two products have very different roles in our life, let alone healthcare system. You know, food is medicine totally aside. The the role is to make sure that the food that we're receiving is as labeled. Is it ground beef or ground something else? Is is this lettuce free of E. coli? Um, And... So the, the food has a much more active inspection standpoint, but it is primarily from a safety and accuracy of labeling standpoint. That's kind of it. Um, and then for cosmetics, again, it's a similar, you know, is there lead in your foundation? No? Okay. Um, the cosmetics regulations are fairly more, more fairly recent, and it is the manufacturer's responsibility to ensure that the products are safe. Um, However, most of the safety assessments are done in in terms of topical use. This doesn't cause irritation. It doesn't cause an allergic reaction. It's safe. And I know some of the more recent conversations about, uh, especially you know, thinking about full face makeup, what does it do to an impact on a daily use? Mm-hmm. That's very rarely looked like most. Sorry, mo- very rarely looked at mostly because it's very complicated to run those types of long-term studies in something with as minimal exposure as makeup. Um, so logistics aside, the, the safety assessment is, tar- you know, is, is this going to give you a rash today? No. All right. I, that's, that's safe. And I'm mm-hmm. using very plain language for <laughs> the general public. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that that's a really important thing to acknowledge is that you know, when it comes to the drug and device that we really are looking at, you know, the long-term and the cost benefit that there's a lot of that double-blind research that's going on, um, such as the trial might allow. But when it comes to food and cosmetics, really we're looking at, are you going to be in full body rash or bent over the toilet today? E. coli or an allergic reaction happening on your skin. But for all of the things that are put into it, and this gets into the murky water of toxic exposure, which has been a very common conversation um, on a lot of kind of the alternative healthcare um, com- um, podcasts, is that, you know, can we say what's in our makeup if that's going to have a long-term toxic exposure? And that same thing would be said about food that is chemically derived. So we're not having long-term double-blind studies on red dye number, what have you, or the 25-syllable chemical word that is in your foundation. Those don't go through the same kind of trials as our medication, yes? Correct. So what's the responsibility then of the manufacturers putting those into our products versus the FDA? That's a tougher question. Um, So... The FDA is looking 
like I said, at, at safety. It mm-hmm. then becomes the manufacturer's responsibility to look at things that are, well, I'll, I'll just say this very plainly, you know, dramatic bad reactions are bad for business. And that's true of any of the products in the scope that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so generally, again, pulling it big picture rather than just to cosmetics, if I can, most of these companies, I have to assume good intent. You know, some of these catastrophic cases of dramatic medication reactions or E. coli in lettuce or, you know, um, I don't I don't have a good cosmetic one that comes to mind, but... They're not good for business. You know, this is not in the uh, bad publicity is good publicity sort of realm. And so I have to assume that all manufacturers ultimately want to make good products because it's good for business in the long run to make products that people like for me to feel like my foundation also leaves me glowy and not breaking out at the end of the day. I'm going to buy it again versus one that feels caked on and I hate it in an hour. Like, the, okay, I'm, I'm probably not going to buy that again, regardless of any sort of you know, long-term effects it might have on me. I'm more worried about short-term as well as a consumer. But that is where in our capitalistic society, consumer is king and trying to do things that are good for business as well as good for consumer. And so I, I come to assume good intent. And then the exceptions are where they're shady business or trying to skirt the edges of the rule. And I do feel like those are more the exception than the rule. And so when it comes then to the idea of we're going to assume good intent out of um, a product, out of a cosmetic product, or, you know, most of the cereals on our shelf are are generally full full of a lot of chemical additives, um, that we're not thinking that there is some insidious desire to poison the American people. But on that same point is the, the rules along the FDA and food and safety goes that if the chemical that I'm putting into the food or putting into the cosmetic does not immediately make you sick, my assumption of good intent is it's not going to and I'm good and I can keep rolling with it. And the FDA is going, yeah, we agree. Doesn't make you immediately sick and we don't have any long-term studies to prove otherwise right now. So then when it comes to the idea of getting any of these things off of our shelves, because, you know, we have, there are different governing agencies um, it, throughout the country, uh, sorry, throughout the world. So FDA is the American version and, and European Union and European countries have different ones. You know, we see different regulations. We see that, you know, in Europe, there are thir- over 1,300 chemical compounds banned from cosmetics versus here in the United States, there are 11. You know, and 26 countries have opted to ban GMO products versus here in the United States, we haven't. So there are these processes that we go by to get products off of the shelves, to get chemicals off the shelves. But clearly there's a bit of a different process here compared to Europe when we look at these staggering number differences. Can we talk a little bit about how that that actually ends up happening for the consumer if there is a long-term reaction or problem? Yeah. And so there are there are several mechanisms to get information to the FDA to make these ongoing decisions um, for no, no matter the product. You know, if there's a drug reaction, there's one mechanism because there are, you know, the FDA is an umbrella and then there's different groups mm-hmm. that oversee each of these things. Um, if you have food poisoning, 
you can, you know, there's, there's CDC, there's some overlap, right? You can report that to the CDC to get the restaurant looked at. You can report, you know, your lettuce to the FDA so that they can inspect that a little bit as well. There's, um, cosmetics as well has a separate. And so on the FDA website, any consumer can go in and report a reaction. Um, and it takes, unfortunately, it takes a lot of data to reverse, reverse decisions, especially in the medical field. Um, I'm not as familiar with the process of investigating, you know, these chemicals, for example, in the different, um, uh, cosmetics globally, but I know that the FDA and the U.S. public at large is willing to tolerate different kinds of risks where it's yes now, questions later. It's like the old wild west, shoot first, <laughs> questions later. You know, It's assume good intent, assume it's safe until proven otherwise, whereas mm -hmm. the philosophy in Europe is much more prove it's safe, then we'll talk. And since it's out there in the U.S. and it, there's not enough information to prove that it's unsafe versus the amount of information in Europe where they don't feel confident that it is safe from a, I guess, going back big picture again, from a statistical point of view, asking if something is safe versus is it unsafe are two different questions. And which which ties into some of the challenges with actually assessing the data coming out of the clinical trials is we can answer the question we asked. It's really difficult to answer any of the questions not asked in the trial because when you're not asking that specific question, it's not always clear if the information is noise, coincidence, or actually a signal of an interaction of some kind. And then that's on, you know, let's let's talk drugs, for example, where there's a clear metabolic impact on the body and you still can't tell sometimes versus cosmetics where there's, again, speaking very generally, not always a clear signal and takes months, sometimes years of consistent doses, let's call it dose for this conversation, to get even fluctuating signals. And mm -hmm. then because of interaction with BPAs and food choices and other drugs, it's still difficult to see if, is it the cosmetic calling, causing an, uh, an estrogen impact, let's say, or the fact that she had to take this prescription drug for decades. And then because of the prevalence of birth control, it gets even tougher to really figure out where the issue's coming from. And so the US view on that is, well, we can't tell, so eh, probably fine. Versus the European view is we can't tell. It's probably not fine. Well, and I like that really clear distinction between what type of question are we asking? You know, it's the innocent until proven guilty still apply to all of these things. And just like you were lining out there, it gets really muddied and really confusing out in the wild. You know, that's why we have the controlled studies around pharma and around device so that it can be very clear it is contained and as controlled as we possibly can within this study. But like you were saying, we have air pollutants in the, um, from exhaust and fumes and off-gassing of plastics. We have organic versus non-organic food. Any lifestyle choice looking at, looked at over the course of a person's lifetime has so many aspects to it you know, that we can't even agree on lifestyle um, retrospective studies that have been going on for 50 or 60 years. We talk about 
you know, people living in the blue zone in the Mediterranean diet. And everyone is going to pick that study apart and argue, is it the food? Is it the fresh air? Is it the living in the sunshine? Could it be a little bit of everything? But you can't prove any one piece when there's so much happening at once. Right. And science likes um, X, you know, X plus Y equals Z. That's, Mm -hmm. That's what science can show. But there's limitations because there's things that I do that make me feel good as a consumer and things that make me not feel good as a consumer. But there's not a study to show that it's Mm -hmm. my personal experience. And that's bringing it back full circle to the top. The FDA and all of their roles is looking at public safety. What is the overall risk to the public, which is sometimes very different than an individual risk to a consumer? You know, Mm -hmm. someone. I mean, any person, especially here in the U.S., has the right to make their own decisions about, well, anything that they do, even if it's unsafe by general standards. But that is an individual choice. The FDA, for all of these, looks at what is the general rate of occurrence? What is the general impact? You know, we talk about all these generalizations where the extremes are very different, you know, and looking at the general occurrence of cancer is, actually don't know, but it's, um, it's, it's different for the general population than for my family, where mm-hmm. 100% of the people that I come from have, have all had cancer. And so um, not, not always uh, fatal. And so, but my risk for the decisions that I'm going to make in that context for me are different than things that I'm going to take from FDA or CDC or some other public health entities, because those are guidance working on the, you know, one in four, one in 10, the rates Mm -hmm. are actually different for different cancers, but that is the public's exposure. Mine's way higher. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that brings up a really phenomenal point about our personal responsibility and products that we choose. And this is sort of an American conundrum is that with so much freedom and so many choices, you know, how do you, how do you take care of yourself and take care of your family? Because what we can see here, you know, the cloaked in some um, very professional and um, um, diplomatic language, that what we can see is that everything that is on the shelf is not always safe. It has not passed all of this scrutiny and testing. It has not been proven safe by any other standards. So now the risk lies inherently in the consumer as well as the consumer's own risk profile. You know, when you talk about the 100% um, occurrence of cancer within your family, that is very much going to change your profile of choice versus the 15, 20% chance of cancer in my family. But we do have a lot of other things that happen in my family, um, behavioral issues that might make me think twice about red dyes and things that might have been linked linked to these things, but not yet proven because we just can't really know. But we have to make those choices for ourselves. And that's the setup culturally that mm-hmm. U.S. citizens have chosen to make on a whole, where it's, mm-hmm. I'm going to do by me. I don't want the government to tell me what's safe. Whereas mm-hmm. the again, speaking broadly, but more cultural views within Europe is generally like, I'm, I'm okay with the government telling me what's safe or not. 
And the downside is there are certain expectations of consumers about what's available then on the shelves because there's an understanding of it's available, ergo, it must have some sort of implication. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just not true. And that's where as consumers, we need to be able to do our own research and um, have access to the information that's out there to be savvy and appreciate what what's being said on the labels. Let's let's think about food labels, for example, where the information's just there. There's not a value add to it. And some of the things that, especially in a healthier lifestyle that we like to see, you know, things that say paleo friendly, terms like that don't appear anywhere in the regulations. However, they are regulated in terms of name of food, uh, name of product, all the different ways that foods can, should, or shouldn't be called imitation or, you know, dairy product, that's all regulated. Um, the way that the nutrition label appears down to the font and type size are all regulated. And that is to try to help consumers make informed decisions. However, it's all muddled by the fact that food science and ingredient science has far exceeded regulations and the way that people even want to be regulated. Well, and so then again, in the omission of things that aren't included, we're not hearing words like natural and fresh. Um, Even organic is not terribly regulated. There are some constraints put on that to get certain labels, but those are private industry labels, not FDA labels. So all of these things do not come from the same government regulation. So we can really... um, Again, we talked about the capitalistic and consumerist society that we're in. We can really be swayed by the nice natural colors on a packaging and words like fresh and natural and homemade. And all of those words really hold no value within the regulation of the true quality of food. But because we get back to the real um, role of the FDA around food, which is as labeled and accuracy. So there are small things like chickens spelled correctly by English standards versus chicken spelled super cutesy Mm -hmm. would probably mean you're having some cutesy chicken, not real chicken (laughs) in your food. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. But those, but those are the pieces that are different, not natural chicken, organic chicken versus not actually chicken. (laughs) Right. And that's, um, where, you know, it, as as some of these big corporations, and this is more a big picture issue and not necessarily an FDA issue, but there's not always great clarity on where the product actually comes from as well. In terms of consumer information, there's labeling that looks like it came from a small farm, but what you don't actually know is they're owned by, you know, XYZ, owned by another, owned by another, owned by Kellogg. Okay. <laughs> Um, And so who's actually responsible for the quality of that chicken? Is that small farm, which was, uh, you know, absorbed by a bigger corporation, still really in charge of what's happening? And I'll concede it's very difficult sometimes to tell as consumers, but that's where I happen to love farmer's market. I can walk up and meet the farmer sometimes. And the labeling on the jar of jam that I get from that farmer is non-existent, but I can talk to him and find out what's in it and tell by his facial expression if he's lying to me. And (laughs) um, 
where, you know, I mentioned that because many of the regulations that the FDA is based off of were originally written in 1906. They were updated again a few decades later in the 30s, a little bit in the 70s. There was a huge overhaul in the late 90s for the Modernization Act, um, uh, FDA uh, Modernization Act of is 96 or 97. But generally, the basis for everything that the FDA does, 1906, the way that food is produced and transported, the technology available for that, the um, and the same for cosmetics and drugs and devices, the technology even to drive down the road is so different. And so if you, if you understand where they came from, early 1900s and the access to farmers in that instance, the access to primarily localized food sources, the FDA didn't have to do much. <laughs> you know, it was really an oversight to, to make sure that there wasn't a lot of, I don't know, ac accidental spoilage versus now there's... Um, <laughs> there's 56 different names for sugar and that's excluding artificial sweeteners or sugar substitutes 56 different ways that sugar can appear on the label i don't think people 100 years ago knew of more than one kind of sugar right yeah. <laughs> i guess three sugar cane maple and honey but there's there's all these different ways and there's at this point for it's for consumers alone it's difficult to read what's on the label let alone for the regulations to keep up with the way that food science and a little bit of marketing, to be honest, changes how these things are displayed. And I think that's a really great um, point to bring up is that these laws were really made in simpler times. And it was made around simpler access to food. And the way you talked about the only way to really know, unless you're willing to dive deep into this stacking doll situation of who bought what company up till, you know, the biggest names on the market, is about going back to that small farmer's market access level of food. And when we get to the larger implication of health and when we talk about food as medicine, because we are certainly understanding that whole foods really impact our health in ways that few other things do, food access becomes so important. When your only food options are, um, you know, truck stop style stands, you're not going to be able to talk to anyone that had anything to do with making that food. And a lot of preservatives needed to go into that food product itself so that it could make the long journey to, you know, what is st still sometimes being referred to as that food desert. And all of those preservatives, all of those things in your food simply need to be labeled correctly, not have spoiled, and not create any immediate adverse reaction. Heartburn aside. <laughs> So all of these pieces around food and safety put so much pressure on the consumer. And I think it would be difficult to ask, um, you know, given what the industry is, but certainly in implied, it's very difficult to prove that any of these chemical aspects within cosmetics and food are difficult to get off of the market, you know, as evident by the 13,000 to 11 that we see our country versus others. But surely within pharma and device and biotics, it would be easier to get adverse reactions off the market. What's, what's the process for that? Is it actually easier? I, I think it's quieter. So 
they, you just kind of, with the exception of, um, and I, I didn't pull exact names, but a few years ago, there was like big news stories saw on local news about, um, I, I think it was a, a type of cardiac medication that just wasn't working as expected or it worked as expected, but there's all these unexpected adverse events. Mm-hmm. And if that, that one finally got enough notice that it was just kind of quietly pulled in a way that they just kind of stopped prescribing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the more common way, you know, in, I think you can probably speak better this as a physician, but there's this idea of medical reversal on a whole where it's far easier, even in the practice of medicine, never mind the prescriptions, far Mm -hmm. easier to accept and implement something than it is to change your mind about something and realize it wasn't that good in the first place. That, that continues to be true of drugs where we get a confirmation bias, where we saw the data, we liked it. And it's much easier to blow off or brush brush under, I think it's a better term, brush under, you know, N of one reactions that you see, you know, let's say you, um, a physician sees a patient like, oh, it, yes, it helped my blood pressure, but I'm also like weird purple spots. Like, oh, <laughs> well, the, the study didn't say anything about weird purple spots. Maybe, maybe it's just you. And then they gradually see more, gradually see more. And eventually they see enough that the doctor then can report that to the FDA saying, as a practitioner, I'm seeing this very weird adverse event. And maybe it's not troubling, but maybe we need to do additional studies on it. But consumers can also report things. And so especially if you feel like you are, I mean, no one knows your body better than yourself. And so if you think that there's a connection to something, there's, and your doctor isn't taking it seriously for whatever reason, then there's a similar method through the FDA website where you can go in and report your symptoms, report the medication, they'll ask you some questions. You may not hear from them again, but it goes into a repository of of public safety and they take that into consideration periodically. Um, There are types of recalls that any drug or um, biologic or device manufacturer can be exposed to. Some are voluntary recalls where they pull it off the market or pull a specific lot off the market until they have more information. Um, And sometimes it's the the FDA, uh, they can require recalls. They can also strongly suggest a recall and then the manufacturer gets an opportunity to voluntarily recall it. And sometimes these make big news, especially if it is prolific. Like there was... Uh, can I name brands as an example? Yeah. Uh, Excedrin, a few years ago, there was mm-hmm. problematic on many, many lots. And there was a huge recall. Everyone stopped taking it off their shelves. I don't know that the brand has ever really recovered from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I still see it on the bottles, but it had to go through the the report of neg- negative reactions had to far exceed what many consumers would have thought to be appropriate in order to draw conclusions, in part because going back to the discussion of stats, they weren't looking for the reaction. They were relying on self-report. And so if you're not asking the question and information is just passively coming in, it can look like noise. It can look Mm -hmm. like what else could it be? And it's not a, again, assuming good intent, I like to think that most of the time, it's not about how do I get out of a causal link? It's let's look very pragmatically at what else was going on. Okay, they got purple spots. 
but they also started a new laundry detergent, a new diet, and two other medications. How do I know as the manufacturer that the purple spots are actually from that? Mm -hmm. And so I think that was a kind of a windy answer. The, the short answer is it takes a lot more data to get something pulled. And it's because it's a complicated matter of both public opinion and actual data being able to link causal, not just correlated responses. And that goes to the whole overarching umbrella of the FDA in general. Again, it's not to prove that something is safe, but to prove that something is unsafe. And particularly when we're looking at the world of pharma and devices, you know, a lot of these things that prescriptions are being um, studied, well, that pharmaceuticals are being studied for to create prescriptions is for some very serious um, diseases, chronic or acute. The, um, the long-term effects for many of these include death. So when we're looking at a pharmaceutical to help support someone's health and well-being around it, you know, what is the tipping point of patient after patient coming into your office and saying, gosh, I'm feeling fatigue and brain fog and just not quite myself compared to, well, you didn't die. And then how many of these, you know, casual stories need to add up before we realize it's not just a patient who's tired because they changed their diet, they started a new job, they had a child, there's a million other reasons. We have to accumulate this in a not really looking for it, arrive in a gift bag on your doorstep at a high enough level to make a change. Mm -hmm. So again, the responsibility doesn't really seem to be on, you know, on the FDA in this, they're not knocking on everyone's door saying, tell me, is this really as good as the manufacturer said it is? They're waiting for you to come to them. They're playing it very cool. <laughs> yes. And part of that comes from really damaged public position over the years. And so part of it is they're, it's never quite good enough for American consumers. And that's, you know, I'm, again, I'm speaking kind of flippantly because it, there's different mentalities of, of you're never going to be able to please everyone. But when drugs are removed seemingly too quick from the market, you know, again, going back to the orphan disease conversation that we had earlier, you know, it makes some people die. Well, some of those consumers of that product say, I'm definitely going to die without it. So I'm going to take that drug. And it's not the FDA's role to tell me whether or not I can take this deadly drug. If they're going to manufacture it and they're going to sell it to me, let me take it because I've got no other option. It's mm -hmm. very different than the conversation happening with patients with heart disease. And okay, they've got clots. They've got usually a handful of things. If one of their medications is making any of their cardiac conditions worse, okay, let's not <laughs> chase like that. That seems like it's counterintuitive. Like it made it made the AFib better, but clots worse. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a different conversation because, yes, people with cardiac disease have a higher mortality, but it's not like mortality tomorrow. It's not like their life depends on taking this drug. And so the risk benefit coming from those two very such different situations mm -hmm. and the recent call of why didn't you take this off the market sooner? Because a lot of people were getting sick from it usually comes from the types of conditions where people aren't going to acutely die from their condition anyways, versus mm -hmm. those who are. 
Similarly, looking at, let, let's look at supplements versus cosmetics. Um, so in cosmetics, drawing back to what we were talking about, Americans allow a lot more things in their cosmetics. And there's kind of a call to, to do more, make things more transparent, take some of these more toxic things out. Versus generally with supplements, if you trust the manufacturer of these supplements, most people who take supplements don't want any additional FDA oversight. It's no, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't need any more proof. It works for me. I don't want studies. I don't want you in my business. I want to take this. And I say this as someone who's taking supplements, I found a brand that I like thanks to a very great care provider who could recommend them. And I don't, I don't want any additional burden on those manufacturers because they're working for me. Not every supplement works for every person and therefore having studies to mandate efficacy in order to demonstrate safety as an aspect of it seems unfair. And yet it's often the same people. I am a consumer of supplements. I am also a consumer of cosmetics. I do want more regulations in my cosmetics. I don't want more in supplements. And so it also, <laughs> they're getting this conflicting messaging mm -hmm. from the same people and trying to reconcile how to divide very limited resources between what the two groups want. And conversely, people from Europe, some, some people who love cosmetics, get things from the U.S. because they like them. They cannot get them in Europe. And they think that some version of whatever chemical they want to put on their face is the bee's knees. And mm -hmm. they don't have adverse reactions. They think the EU is overstepping. So they come to L.A. and go on shopping sprees. And so it's what, what side of consumer access you know, it's pairing free choice versus mm -hmm. informed choice. And it's very difficult to get both in equal amounts. I like that informed choice versus free choice kind of aspect here. Um, because with a lot of regulation, it, the information might become more transparent, but the options would become less numerous. And I think what we see from people who do buy cosmetics and products from the United States and people in the United States who will go and buy food products from Europe because they want that regulation in is that everyone is looking for that um, personal, that N of one, their own personal statistic over the general population, whether it comes from high regulation or low regulation. And the problem I think comes down to with so much noise and so many products on the market now, a lot of households don't have even the personal resources to do the due diligence and research and would like to rely on clear labels that maybe don't exist but still that desire to do what suits them best. And I'm so glad that you brought up um, nutraceutical supplements because that was something that we were gonna touch on and got totally windy sidetracked on. Um, but it's, as, as a provider who does suggest the use of supplements for a lot of my patients, there does come to be a little bit of inherent risk with that as well. Because if you don't buy from uh, a manufacturer who takes it upon themselves to do third-party testing and have great transparency about what's in their product, just like cosmetics, just like the food and drug industry, that you could have a whole bunch of crap in there. And there are a lot of over-the-counter brands that have really great natural titles to them and soothing colors on their label that you can buy at your local market that are absolutely full of fillers and crap and won't work for you because they're full of fillers 
and crap, and there's no regulation for that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really the wild west out there. And when it comes back to you know the topic of our conversation today, what does the FDA do, and what can you count on the FDA for? Mm-hmm. It's really that very baseline level of it's not going to kill you today and you are getting what the label says yes and everything else every other personal decision whether you are looking for organic or you don't care about organic and you think gmos are the way to go or if you're looking for just whatever supplement you can take that relies on the consumer Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it so What are resources, as we kind of wrap up our conversation here today, what are resources that the consumer can use and can rely upon, um, either from the FDA or if there's other sources that you know and love, to help direct themselves if they want to start hmm, asking and answering questions um, about their own consumption habits? So um, two main places, FDA website, and I'll expand on that in just a moment, but also the manufacturer website of any product um, you know, acknowledging that there's going to be a lot of sales and marketing in there, um, even if there's a lot not said on the website, that's very telling. You know, if, if we think about food, small ranchers who have a website, it's not going to be a very pretty website, but they're going to put their passion out there. And versus if you go on like some name brand soda pop websites, they're, they're not going to have a lot of information. It's not going to be you know, product value-based, it's going to be about how delicious their product is. And it is delicious. It's hyper delicious and addictive because of that. But sorry, overstepping. But um, the, the what you find on there is very different. And so individual consumers should, you know, do do the work with themselves to try to determine what what is the value in their overall wellness, whether it's healthcare or food-based or supplements, is decide what's important to you. And then look for individual manufacturers or producers who then embody those values. If you can, reach out directly to them. Smaller companies are going to have better access to responding. And maybe you can start a conversation and ask the point blank questions that are important to you. And you can get answers. Um, Another place to go, like I mentioned first, FDA website. Each of the places that they oversee have in plain English, usually information available to the average American. You don't, for the most part, unless you're clicking in the regulations themselves, The to the FDA's credit, they've done a lot of work to make their website generally understandable to most people. And you can go to, um, they've got some overall you know, information about what they do. And you can go on the food subpage, cosmetics, Drugs, devices, biologics are all kind of different. And you can look at what's new. What are they doing? As you get more specific into drug and device, it very quickly gets technical, but they have lots of information out there. And then for most consumers, one of my favorite places to go on the FDA website is they have um, alerts, recalls, and warning letters. And you can go on this page on the on FDA. So for all the things that FDA, good, bad, or indifferent, one thing they do very well is anytime any organization under their purview, supplement organization, cosmetic, food, you name it, um, especially drug and devices, if they inspect it and they have findings and have to issue what's called a warning letter, which is a good finger wagging, or 
worse, some actual reprimand, which are named after forms that they use to then reprimand the organizations, they post it online. And so if you have a manufacturer that you're interested in, just type their name in and see if they've gotten any warning letters general uh, recently. Now, the caveat is just like putting nutritional information out there. It just is what it is. The warning letter doesn't tell you if they then took steps to fix the problem. They usually do because there's usually a follow-up to that. But if you see a warning letter, you know, warning, you had terrible hygiene at your facility. And then you see a follow-up warning letter that says the response to our warning letter was not sufficient. We find that you are still not hygienic in your facility, and this is your 30-day warning before we close you. That's going to be pretty telling to the values on the organization. Now, one warning letter is, sorry, I'm going a little bit on a tangent here. One warning letter you can chalk up to ignorance, accident, oh no, we'll do better. Two warning letters, especially with the language of your past response was insufficient, tells you that the values of that organization are, um, they, uh, well, that they don't necessarily take the consumer best mind. Because if you, if you assume good intention from everyone, they're trying to put out a good product and the FDA is trying to protect the public. If someone then goes in and says, nah, I don't, I don't want to do what you said. Furthermore, you know, and then there, there are nice regulatory ways to say and stick it. Um, sometimes that happens in these letters <laughs> and that tells you that the owners of those organizations probably don't take the situation seriously, and they're probably not a values-based organization, they're a profit-based organization. And I like ending on this caveat and this really nice way for consumers to gauge their purchases, engage and gauge how they want to engage with companies, is you don't have to necessarily um, research every product down to my lipstick, my mascara, um, my cheese that I'm taking to lunch tomorrow, and the pharma prescription that I need to take for something that's going on. We can look at using the FDA because, again, you know, I hope our language here um, does point out that we're not trying to vilify the FDA, nor are we trying to turn it into a hero. It is a system and a structure. And just like all the systems and the structures that have been created in the United States, some of them are very archaic, and some of them have been based on values now that are over 100 years old and don't quite have the update. But for whatever it is, it is still the system and structure and, for, and structure for better, worse, or otherwise. But what they do is they show you who is responding. And if we look at all of our product based on value, based on the value of the company, where we'd like to say that they are consumer-minded and we assume good intent because we are generally optimistic people like that. Well, Rebecca and I are, I think maybe some of our listeners are kind of going, no, no one has good intention. And maybe that's the value piece that you're looking from. We can go and do a litmus test on that. And is this pharmaceutical company really showing up with integrity or are they having recall after recall after recall for repeat offenses that all look the same? Same thing can be true for your food company, the place that you like to buy all your meats and cheeses. Are they just not cleaning stuff over and over and over again? Now we can sort of say with a bit of a blanket statement, I don't know if they take hygiene seriously. I don't know if they take this seriously. And maybe I will make my purchasing decisions differently. 
And one thing that comes down to be true in the United States is that it is the purchasing decisions and voting with our dollars that ends up making the biggest impact because that's where the information starts to trickle back to the companies in a way that is really meaningful since no one is coming and knocking on your door saying, so did you get the purple spots or not? I'm not really sure. <laughs> so um, a lot of buyer beware, a lot of personal responsibility, but none of this is terribly new to our conversations about healthcare. When it comes down to it, just as Rebecca said, just as I have said, no one knows your body as well as you do. No one knows your family history as well as you do, or maybe your parents do. And you are you have the opportunity, this beautiful, abundant opportunity to make decisions based on that personal health history. But you also have the responsibility to make the decisions wisely. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing all of this phenomenal information. Um, your resources will be in our show notes and available. So if anyone wants, one, wants to find those links for the FDA and um, maybe where those naughty warning letters are, um, you'll be able to find those as well. Um, thank you again. And thank you. thank you everybody for joining us for another episode of the Healing Ground Movement podcast. Thanks for joining us on this journey and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.